the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 31 of Magic Markets. So we're into a new decade here, Mo, um, at least in number of episodes, if not anything else. And most importantly, it's really good to have you back. So good to see you fighting fit under the circumstances. And I hope your family and everyone's, you know, as okay as they can be, given uh, what everyone is currently going through. And certainly our thoughts go out to our Magic Markets listeners who equally, I think everyone's been impacted by, you know, this uh, pandemic one way or another. And we just all have to kind of keep our heads down and hope for the best and, and, and try and stay safe as best we can. So that'll be the last we talk about this uh, horrible disease on the show uh, tonight. But Mo, welcome back. It's great to have you. And uh, in your honor, we're going to talk about stuff that I don't understand that well tonight, which is quite exciting. I'll understand the first part of the show reasonably well, which is all about the basics of the yield curve. And then we'll hand over to your fixed income brain to talk about the uh, the fancier stuff. Eh? Yeah, Ghost, it's, it's good to be back. I mean, obviously, it's, it's been a difficult time. And again, you know, I, I must echo just even my sentiments to, to anyone who's affected by this pandemic directly or indirectly. Um, so, yeah, good to be back on the show and, uh, you know, hoping and praying for the best, hoping that, you know, things ease up. Uh, but let's get let's get straight back into it. I mean, Ghost, you know, the, the world's gone on. It's been an interesting time. You know, markets have been kind of all over the show. Um, but I think the biggest story recently for me was was obviously the Fed. You know, we had an FOMC meeting last week. Uh, and for those that don't know, FOMC is the Federal Open Market Committee. It's the, the bunch of very important people sitting up in Washington who kind of decide the fate of the financial world uh, every couple of months. Uh, they set the, uh, the U.S. policy rate. Uh, and last week, we had the Fed meeting and we had... You know, we know there's been this debate about inflation and whether inflation in the U.S., which has popped and it's it's above three and a half percent, you know, uh, is that going to be transitory or is it actually going to be something that's a little bit more sustained? And, and the reason why this is important is simply because if it's transitory, it means that you don't necessarily have to have any kind of policy response just yet. But if it's sustained, it means that the Fed as the policymaker is going to have to act and they're going to have to act sooner rather than later. So, you know, I've, I've written a lot about it uh, on, on my blog at monos.com. Uh, and I think, you know, we've spoken about it in some of our previous shows uh, in terms of my view being that inflation is likely to be transitory. I think that's really the view that's been echoed by the Fed. Uh, but some of the numbers uh, and, you know, what they put forward in their statement last week uh, certainly caused some uh, need or some scare in the markets. And we can unpack some of that in, in the show. Yeah, and let's talk about uh, the transitory inflation points. So, I mean, you've been writing about it. I dedicated ghost mail to it this week because it's so important because whether or not you trade fixed income or have any interest whatsoever in owning bonds, the reality is that the yield curve, the Fed, uh, locally, our monetary policy committee here in South Africa, they're going to have an impact on equity 
valuations. There's no getting away from it, and it's really quite simple. It's because equities are just a present value of future expected cash flows. Those cash flows need to move in time back to today, which is the present valuing process, and that has to happen at a specific rate. And at that point in time, whether you like it or not, the yield curve becomes important. So, Mo, if uh, someone asked you what the yield curve is, how would you explain that in a relatively simple way? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I can refer people to to the article I wrote on on Monos where we discuss the yield curve. You've discussed it in 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 Ghost Mail as well. So I really do urge our listeners who aren't already subscribed to our respective newsletters and and platforms to go out there, go and have a look. I mean, the yield curve effectively looks at what is the interest rate, uh, and we'll talk U.S. specifically here. What is the interest rate for different bonds of different maturities? Uh, so, for example, if a bond has a one-year, two-year, five-year, 10-year, 30-year bond in the U.S., what is the yield for each of those bonds at a particular point in time? And if you mapped those, it would give you a curve. That's called the yield curve. Now, simplistically, that means that for money at a 10-year point, which is really your benchmark, at a 10-year point, the rate is going to be, for example, 1.5%. For money at a 30-year a point, it might be 1.8%, for example. And again, as you map those, it gives you a curve, a yield curve. Uh, going back to your analogy, why is this even important to, to people who are interested in equity markets, for example, or any other financial asset for that matter, is that when you're pricing an equity in your valuation, you, you're pricing in uh, a discount rate. Uh, you're pricing in a risk-free rate. And when we go back to the U.S. Federal Reserve as the de facto global risk-free rate, that becomes fundamental to what you're pricing in in terms of how you're discounting the various financial assets uh, and how you value them. So as, again, with yields, as yields go higher, it means that the price of financial instruments like bonds, like equities, will theoretically be lower. Uh, it's the inverse relationship. And I think that's also quite important for listeners that are not familiar with these concepts to realize that when people are afraid of inflation, they say that, okay, the central bank's reaction function is going to be higher interest rates. If they're going to be higher interest rates, it means that yield curve we're speaking about will move higher. And because that moves higher, it means that you're pricing in a higher discount rate in your valuation, which means that your other financial assets, equities, bonds, and the like, the value of those will move lower or the present value of those will move lower. Exactly. And Mo, why is the curve shaped in such a way that in the later years, it's higher? Does it ever go the other way? Is there ever a situation where the longer dated bonds actually have a lower rate? And, and what would be some of the drivers behind this phenomenon that takes place in the market? I think that's actually a fundamentally important question because yes, there are times when the yield curve inverts. Uh, so let's unpack that. First of all, a, a normal shaped yield curve generally has lower rates that are priced in in the near term. And there's something called the liquidity premium. So for example, money today is worth more than money in the future. So in order to compensate you for that, you need to offer someone a higher rate of return to be paying them over a longer period of time. And that's generally why there's a what you would call a liquidity premium to the yield curve. Now, does it ever turn around? Do you ever get the short end of the yield curve kicking up and short-term rates being higher than long-term rates? Yes. Uh, in fact, when you talk of an inverted yield curve, it's quite often seen as a precursor or a risk flag to an oncoming recession, for example. Um, and it, it's, it's one of those old models that, that traditionally tend to work. Why is that the case? Is that 
short end yield short end yields generally kick up when there's a monetary policy reaction function if the reserve bank the federal reserve the saab for example in south africa decide that we're going to increase interest rates in the near term they do so by changing the overnight rate the fed funds rate or the repo rate in south africa and that kicks up the short end of the yield curve however if markets expectations at the longer end remain anchored you'd actually see that it's just the short end that kicks up and the curve tends to invert. So that's how those would work. Uh, I think generally if you see a yield curve inverting, it's a precursor, as I indicated, to a recession, but it also tends to correlate with pressure that comes through on financial assets. And again, the reason for that is if there's a recession, the natural flow through would mean that earnings are likely going to come under pressure, growth is likely going to fall, and as a result, the value of your stock is going to be impacted by both higher interest rates as well as by contracting growth and a deteriorating earnings per share outlook. If you're comparing the curve for, say, South Africa to the U.S., is there anything you can read into it based on just how steep it is? So, for example, would countries that are higher risk potentially need to reward people more for taking a longer-term view as opposed to a country like the U.S., which is perceived to be lower risk, and so perhaps that curve is a little bit flatter, I suppose, across the durations? So if you're looking at the U.S. curve, again, remember the U.S. is your risk-free rate. So generally, what's priced into a U.S. yield curve, if we assume that U.S. debt is effectively risk-free, that's a whole discussion for another day. But if we assume that, it's just your liquidity premium that gets priced into the shape of that yield curve over time. When you go out to emerging markets like South Africa, what effectively gets priced into different points on your yield curve is a liquidity premium, and inflation premium, which is also there in the US. So bear in mind, if your expectations around long run inflation start to escalate, it's gonna affect where the long end of that yield curve goes. Okay, so that's in both the US as well as a South African yield curve, for example. The third component that comes in with a South African yield curve or any other market, an emerging market, is the credit risk component. And so when you're pricing a point, for example, on a South African yield curve, if I were looking to attribute a fair value, for example, to a South African 10-year bond, I would look at what is the risk-free rate, so that's the US 10-year, okay, what is the inflation premium that I'm going to have to price into that, and what is the credit risk effectively and that boils down to sovereign risk uh, often priced off your your credit default swaps for example and that helps you deconstruct what you would be earning in South Africa in terms of a risk-free rate an inflation premium and a credit premium and that credit premium is why rates in South Africa are just higher than they are in the US right so I think you said the 10-year rate in the US might be say one and a half percent in South Africa the 10-year rate is running at about 8.9 percent so you've got this very substantial credit risk premium. And that, by the way, is part of why emerging markets multiples on equities are typically a little bit lower as well versus hard currency companies. And and why you will often see, you know, JSE value stocks will have PE ratios of like six or seven. But it's unusual to see that playing out in, in a US market. Although obviously, there's way more to it than that. There's value versus growth stocks, growth expectations, the whole shebang. But generally speaking, it's also why South African companies have to or have historically overpaid in many cases for global acquisitions because they have to go there and offer big multiples to go and actually buy these companies just because those economies are more stable, a little bit less risky. And so every dollar earned is just worth that little bit more because there's just a bit less risk attached to it. I, I think that's that's a reasonable that's a reasonable assumption. I mean, as, as you indicated, there's a lot more 
to it than just that. I think that's a component of it. I mean, if we simplistically were to deconstruct the South African yield curve right now, and let, let's use round numbers. So if, for example, you're saying it's 8% versus on a 10-year versus 1.5% in the US, for example, your 1.5% is your, your risk-free rate. Then there's an inflation differential in South Africa relative to the US. And historically, that's trended around, say, around 3%, 3 to 3.5%. Uh, and then on top of that is your credit risk premium. So I'm just trying to deconstruct this into the building blocks for you. And historically, in South Africa, that's also ranged from at the lower end, in fact, in, in the really good times, uh, around 180 basis points. And in the really bad times, you know, well north of 500 basis points. So that's quite fluid, and that's depending on what does the fiscal situation look like down in South Africa and so forth? So when you deconstruct that, generally there is around a 700 odd basis points average differential between a US 10-year and a South African 10-year. And of that, I would say a smaller component of that is, is the inflation differential. We've got a very responsible central bank down in South Africa that has really anchored inflation expectations. They've done a reasonably good job there. But the risks in South Africa, the reason why that discount rate is higher is that a lot of the, the fiscal risks have been manifesting over a period of time. Now, if we go back to bringing that to valuations, for example, naturally, if you're pricing an asset in any particular geography, you're going to be using your risk-free rate as that particular country's uh, risk-free rate. Uh, or at least if you're looking at a multinational, you're going to be looking at maybe a, a composite, a weighted risk-free rate. You can get really fancy with this stuff. And that will determine how much the actual underlying company should or shouldn't be valued at. And I think that's where you tend to maybe get some of those disconnects. It's not to say in the US, if you picked up a risky company, for example, if you look at that company's own credit rating, for example, a lot of these companies are rated that would imply a higher discount rate. So it should then imply a lower multiple if you're buying that company. So it comes through in the in the wash. Some of it is attributable to sovereign risk premier. And then when you come out to the developed world specifically, but also globally as well, there's going to be a corporate credit risk that you have to attach to it as well. So Mo, that build-up method that you've kind of discussed there regarding how to get to a bond rate, the same thing inevitably happens in the discount rate that's used in equities valuations. And what's really important for listeners to remember from this show and in all their readings around this topic is that yields and prices move in the opposite direction. It's so important. So if yields go up, the current price comes down because you are moving cash flows, you are moving value through time at a different rate. And that is just so important to remember. So when you're doing an equities valuation, the starting point is the risk-free rate, which changes depending on what country you are in. And then you go and add on an equity risk premium because you need to be rewarded by an equity investment over and above the risk-free investment. And we can debate all day about, you know, in South Africa, are you taking more risk by investing in companies here versus the government? But the reality is that if the whole place blew up, it would take all these companies with it. So that's that's the general argument, is that there needs to be a reference to the country's risk-free rate, which often in valuations in South Africa, we would use the 10-year South African bond yield, for example. And then there would be some other adjustments like the beta of the stock, which is, uh, you know, how much it moves in, re in relation to a general market move. So higher beta stocks are stocks that move more in relation to the general market moving. And so you need higher uh, discount rate for that because you need to be rewarded for that. And then there's specific risk premiums that come in on top of that even. So again, this is part of why small caps will often have a lower multiple than large caps is because when you are discounting the cash flows that you will get from a small cap, you're going to put a whole nother risk premium on top of it, which is typically going to decrease the present value of those cash flows. And that's why you will see a small cap 
trading at a PE multiple of six or seven, and a large cap will be on a PE multiple of 16 or 17, and a superstar company will be on a PE multiple of 30, and it's not always because of growth. So clicks is a fantastic example locally. People love to get upset about the multiple on that thing, and they keep waiting for it to unwind, and it just doesn't. And clicks is not growing quickly. It's just as stable as can be. People know where the money's coming from. End of story. You know, Capitec is also on a big multiple, but there people are pricing in growth as opposed to stability. And, and it's just, this is how it kind of comes through into equity valuations. This is why valuations are so complicated, but also so intellectually interesting. If this is something that interests you, and that's part of why the markets are, are just so fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's also important to unpack some of these concepts because, you know, when, when you're looking at stocks, it's it, how you deconstruct them. I mean, we, we're talking concepts like yields and how it affects bond prices, but it's effectively the exact same thing in terms of your discount rate, your risk premium is as your risk premium goes up, think of your risk premium and what you're using to price your stock as a yield, for example, because that's effectively really what it is. And so the higher your, your, your risk premium is, the lower the valuation is. And naturally, the lower your valuation is, the lower the multiple is that you're going to be wanting to pay for that stock. So that's how all of these concepts come together. And it's also why I think there's an important point I'd like to make here, Ghost. It's, it's why a lot of times, you know, people will tell you, oh, you know, we're bottoms up only investors. Uh, and uh, it's why I like the blend. It's, it's why I like what we're putting into magic markets here is that you, you have to marry the macro. What's happening up here? You know, there's Jerome Powell talking about something in the US, the FOMC, the Fed. And a lot of times there's this disconnect in people's minds between why is this important to us? You know, this doesn't matter for us in South Africa. And I think that's the important thing is this is marrying the macro to the micro, the bottoms up and the top down. And that's really what makes a holistic view. Remember that at the end of the day, it's not just going into your stock valuation. So it doesn't just affect your retirement and your savings money, but that also global central banks are interrelated. In, in as much as they will all say we're completely independent, the interplay we've just discussed now flows through the financial system. It's like the blood in the veins of a system. And so even global central bankers, uh, as independent as they may be, will still be tied to what's happening at the US, at the Fed, uh, predominantly as the global reserve currency. It's something that I just want to touch on, which I use in, in valuations. And for those who can build their own discounted cash flow models, you know, for those who are at that stage, and for those who aren't, I really suggest you try and make an effort to just start to play around with that. You'll find stuff online that shows you the basics. It's not easy, but it's so important that if you can build those sort of models, you can start to test the sensitivities to things like a discount rate. Because I think until you've or just go and put any set of cash flows into Excel and then put in a discount rate and go and play around with that rate. And you will see that if the cash flows are front-loaded, the whole value is less sensitive to a change in that discount rate. And if the cash flows are happening in your 10th column, that discount rate change is going to have a big impact. You almost need to see it with your own eyes. And something that I use when I do valuations is, you know, the, the textbook technical answer is go and work out the cost of equity, go and use this capital asset pricing model, you know, and, and all of that stuff. What I do is I look at it and say, what return would I want from this stock? So if I am going to happily buy a small cap, I might want 20% or 25%. Discount the cash flows at that rate, what share price does it spit out? And how does that compare to the current price? And it's something that I use a lot in corporate finance as well, because people have their own ideas around what they want to get as a return from certain assets. And it's not quite technically perfect, 
but it's really powerful to let you say, okay, cool. Well, at a 20% discount rate, this thing looks expensive. So if I just go and do a little goal seek on that discount rate for the current share price, what do I get? Oh, it's 17%. So the market is pricing in 17% on this set of forecasts, which obviously comes with a whole lot of forecasting risk. So this is, to your point, you know, this is why Magic Markets is so great, is because it's this macro view on what's going on in US yields. And by the time you've applied that all the way down into a decision to invest in a JSE small cap, actually Jerome Powell matters and there's no getting away from it. You know, it's going to affect that thinking. And once you understand that entire ecosystem, you're just empowered to make better decisions on average. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, Ghost, I, I don't want our listeners to get us wrong. I mean, I, I don't want to tell them how great Magic Markets is. I want them to tell us how great they think Magic Markets actually is. So, uh, you know, I always plug it and say, go and give us a rating. But going back to it, it's, it's when you're looking at these kinds of dynamics, quite often, I think the way the markets have gone uh, with online share trading platforms it's on your phone, it's, it's actually desensitized people to the fact that on every stock you're clicking on, you're buying, you know, whether it's 100 rand, because there's the other element of fractional ownership, for example. So whether it's 100 rands or 1,000 or 100,000, you are effectively buying a business. You are buying a business. It's not just a line moving on a screen. And when you're buying a business, over the longer term, if you're in this seriously, if you're not just there for, you know, the meme stock plays, if you're not just there for the quick pump and dump that you're seeing, that's become really emblematic of the markets as we're seeing them right now. If you're serious about this, if you're investing for the longer term, then you need to start applying these lenses. You need to start thinking about how does what's happening with U.S. inflation, U.S. rates affect rates in South Africa, affect the price I'm willing to pay for a specific business. And that's the psychology that I would think, I'd like to think Magic Markets listeners are actually evolving towards if they're not already there. It's not just about, hey, this line's going up, I'm gonna buy it and I'm gonna sell it when I think it, it looks quite full. It's also about applying some logic, some thinking, marrying that macro to the micro views. Uh, and that's what makes this a rewarding, but also what makes it sustainable over the longer term. Exactly, because as Bitcoin investors are learning, uh, what goes up does often come down, especially when it went up on a parabolic curve, which is not just a crypto thing. It's shares do it too, and they often correct and, and have a rather nasty experience thereafter. So I think, Mo, as a closing comment, uh, Bitcoin is, is very topical this week because it's tested a pretty important support line. It's bounced back from that support line. But if it starts to close below the sort of 30,000 mark, uh, we were talking about it before we got on the show, and neither of us are currently holding Bitcoin. Below that, there's a lot of open air, which uh, means potentially quite a lot of pain if it goes that way, doesn't it? Technically. Yeah, I mean, B Bitcoin is this this love-hate relationship. And I, I think, again, it's, it's, it's really because a lot of people that are participating in that space have done so very recently. They're looking at lines going up and things that go up in a straight line. You know, they, there's no real understanding of market dynamics, just even behavioral patterns in the market. I'm, I'm not saying that's, that, that is a broad generalization. There are people who really understand the market quite well. But on a technical basis, you're right. Bitcoin's collapsed from around $64,000 all the way down to around 30. It went sub $30,000 today uh, on the day that we're recording this. And it's currently bounced a little bit ahead of that. If 30,000 breaks sustainably, you're easily going to see the lower 20s and then maybe even the teens. Just on a technical basis, that's where your next support levels would come through. Uh, not necessarily saying it's going there. It's why I think on this show, we, we discussed 
uh, crypto arbitrage because that's a lot less risky than going naked long or naked short on a crypto, for example. Uh, on the longer term, you know, Ghost, I, I've said it, I wrote an article for Fun Week about two weeks ago, uh, basically saying, you know, that a crypto flush out will be healthy for the market. And the reason why I say that is I still believe in the underlying uh, ethos behind why cryptocurrencies exist. Uh, it's not going to go away. Even if this thing crashes over the course of the next couple of weeks, couple of days, it's very volatile. Remember that there are global central banks that are looking at cryptocurrency, central bank issued cryptocurrency. So as a feature in markets, I think it's something that's going to be with us for a while and it's going to evolve. I actually think it could become a very powerful monetary policy tool over the longer term. Because if, for example, people move towards digital currencies, uh, it will give central banks the ability to change the price of money at a very micro level. And that's something that's important to conceptualize. Again, I'm going to point uh, listeners towards my blog, towards monos.com, mo-nose.com. I wrote an article about this, not just for the fun week, but also around two or three weeks ago, looking at central bank uh, issued cryptocurrencies and how I see that space evolving. So for now, we're certainly watching it. I'm glad I sold out a Bitcoin at around 55 to 57,000 uh, on, on the price right now. It's down to around the 30s. I'm watching it. It's at a critical watershed level. If it bounces here, maybe it starts trending higher again. But like I said in my Fun Week article, if you're going to follow the herd, herds tend to get slaughtered. And lastly, don't bet the farm on tulip bulbs. You know, when you're looking at these kinds of manias that you're seeing in the crypto space, in some of the meme stocks, be very sensitive. There's a lot of noise in these markets. It's unlike anything I have seen in my 15 plus years in markets. So certainly a strong word of caution as my parting comment and thought for our listeners out there. See, and Mo, you gave a lot of thought to that $55,000 top, whereas as those who follow me on Twitter will know, I just sold out because the EC10 guys blocked me on Twitter and it really irritated me and I was cutful and so I decided to sell and that turned out to be the top as well, more or less, which was very interesting and is not a technical indicator that you will find in any CFA textbooks anywhere. And on that uh, note, I think it's time to uh, sign off on episode 31. It was fantastic to have you back on the show, Mo, obviously, uh, this little joint project of ours and as you alluded to earlier, you know, rate the show to our listeners. Go and give it. We've got 55 star ratings on 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 iTunes, which is kind of cool. So it keeps us going, gives us a bit of energy, and uh, we look forward to doing this again next week. And remember, spread the love. Tell everyone you know about Magic Markets. We appreciate the support. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.